especially all of you that are visiting. Thank you for being here. We're going to begin in our text, which is something that Jesus spoke in Matthew's gospel. It's recorded. It's in more than one of the gospels, but we're going to read it from Matthew's gospel. And it's referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Stephanie and I were talking this week about a needed description for the entire series, not just for today's message. And I feel like the Lord gave me this, and I'll read it to you. The Pray Like This series redefines the traditional role of what many have called the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is full of biblical principles of how to release the power of prayer and your authority in Christ. In this series, we will learn the joy of praying without the bondage of religious legalism. And we'll also learn about our relationship with God and the relationship that He created us to experience in Him. Last week, you'll remember, we took the phrase from the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as, in, as it is in heaven. Remember, this prayer is not meant to be pray, prayed by root. All right? It was never meant to be a liturgy. In fact, Jesus wasn't teaching them steps. He was teaching them principles. Principles by which they then could develop their relationship with God. In last week's message about as in heaven, so on earth... We learn that when we pray, we're literally releasing the image of Jesus and the activity of heaven upon and into our lives, the lives of our family, our friends, and the circle of influence that we have. We looked also at a very powerful scripture. These were the words of Jesus just before he left the earth. He said in John's Gospel, chapter 20, and verse 23, Whoever sins you remit, they are remitted. And whoever sins you forgive, or retain, excuse me, retain, they are retained. If you remit anybody's sins, they're remitted. If you retain them, they're retained. The wording of this was well known to all of the Jewish rabbis to the Hebrew people who were listening to him because it was something that was practiced by the rabbis regularly. Jesus mentions the same concept in Matthew 16 verse 19 and chapter 18 verse 18 when he says, whatever you bind will be bound and whatever you loose will be loosed. Here's what I want to bring back to your remembrance. When you pray, prayer really is more about calling God's will, releasing God's will into the earth than it is petitioning Him for our personal needs. Did you get that? 
so many people view prayer as a sort of pain relief. Or when you get into really bad circumstances and you can't see your way out, well, why don't we pray? And the idea is sort of we're going to beseech this Zeus-looking, white-bearded, old character who sits on a throne, and, and we're going to sort of plead with him to get him to consider our situation. When Jesus taught this prayer to his disciples, when he taught these values and principles, that idea of God was the furthest thing from the words that Jesus gave them. And again, when he said to them, call God's kingdom down onto earth. Believe that God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's one of the greatest principles of all of Christendom. One of the greatest principles and values of your relationship with God is that whatever's going on in heaven, you and I are vessels for that to happen in earth. We're ambassadors of that. Whatever's going on in heaven, God uses us to bring it on earth. I want to say that again. Whatever's going on in heaven, God uses us to bring it into earth, bring it into our circumstances, into our families. You don't plead and ask God and beg God to do something about that situation. You release His will. God's already done it in heaven. So He said, whatever you bind on earth, it's bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, it's loosed in heaven. And so then we come to today's phrase at this point in our study. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this begins what a lot of people call or refer to as the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And I realize that while the word petition might apply, I don't want you to view even this, give us this day our daily bread, as a petition to, as a petition to get God to do something, but rather, once again, it's a principle of our humble dependence upon Him. So I have two teachings for you here today as we look through this passage and consider it. Number one, that give us this day our daily bread is, is a way of us saying, Lord, I am utterly and humbly dependent upon you for everything. The second teaching is that contained in this idea of bread, give us this day our daily bread, is something called the spiritual bread of God. There's a song that's been penned in the last, I think, year to two years by one of the great Christian groups called Good, Good Father. How many of you have ever heard that Christian song, Good, Good Father? It gets a lot of radio time and airplay. We've sung it here quite a bit as well. Good, Good Father. Do you know God has your back? Look at somebody and say, God's got your back. <laughs> no, really. He knows everything that's going on in my life. He's not troubled by it like I am. And he says, you know what? I'm a good, good father. I've got your back. Give us this day our daily bread. It's not begging him. Once again, it's a declaration. I declare 
that I am absolutely dependent upon you, Father, and you have my back. You're a good, good Father. So where does this idea come from that we have to beg God, that we have to plead with God, that we have to petition God, that God is this sort of Greek Zeus character with a long white beard that sits in judgment over our lives and just looking for an opportunity to sort of catch you doing something wrong? And he only rewards those who are doing right, by the way, this whole scenario goes, this religious view of God. Where, where does that come from? I wonder if it could be something all the way back in Genesis that happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's consider it. You'll remember that after Adam and Eve partook of the tree and fell, that God came walking through the garden, as was his custom in the cool of the day, to have fellowship with them. Adam and Eve had hidden themselves. In doing so, God called out to them, where are you? Now, you know, don't you, that God wasn't having a problem locating them geographically. <laughs> that when he said, where are you, what he was acknowledging is something had changed in the relational component between him and them. And actually, the more correct way to say it would, something changed in them towards him. Nothing ever changed in him towards them. You need to get that. So he came looking for them, and they were hiding. They came out, and a conversation ensued. During that conversation, judgment was pronounced. See if you remember this part. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread the rest of the days of your life. Who did God say that to? Well, all the guys. Come on, guys. The breadwinner. All the men, right? The breadwinner. He said it to Adam. The I'm looking for some response here this morning. He said it to Adam, who... At that time, you know, we didn't have political correctness, we didn't have women's equality, we didn't have all of this stuff going on that we enjoy today. And Adam stood up and said, uh, you know, I'm kind of the leader, the breadwinner here. Here's my part in this. And God said, from now on, this ground that you work is cursed and whatever you get out of it is going to require a great deal of sweat. Here's the century English or uh, CEV version, contemporary English version. You will have to sweat to earn a living. Could I see a hand? Could I get... You, you will have to sweat. Women, you're allowed to. You will have to sweat because some of you are single or divorced or whatever. I, I have to sweat. See, that, that's part of a curse that came because that relationship with God changed in them. The New International RV version, which I think stands for recent version or revised version or something, it's a newer NIV, says this, you will have to work and sweat a lot to produce the food that you eat. Now, the word that's used here for face by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, is a Hebrew word, 
It's used over 448 times in the Old Testament, and it's the word anger. Only once in all of the Old Testament, in all of the Bible, is it used for face. And it's here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. But we could also say, by your anger, something's changed. You're no longer relying on me. You're going to be relying on your own self-effort. By your anger, by your sweat, by what you can produce internally, you're going to eat from the ground. How many of you have ever gotten angry at work? <laughs> Boy, I'm, it's like this whole row back here is, yeah, pastor, preach. Boy, if I, could we just agree that maybe somebody over on this side would... Have, have you ever worked for a boss, a manager, that maybe at lunchtime you just got in your car and took a drive and, and cried? <laughs> Is that Jesus? Take me out of this job. Jesus, I'm going to kill somebody. Yeah. That's by the anger now. You chose self-reliance. Have at it. And the word bread, listen to this. It means bread. It means just simply food. But it comes from a primitive Hebrew word that means to fight, to do battle, to make war. So between anger and fighting and struggling and making war, has there ever been a picture, better picture, of what our lives have become since the fall of Adam and Eve as we struggle on this earth to just make a living? And so I think what's happened for many of us is we've carried that idea of judgment and punishment over into what we read in the New Testament. It's wrong to do that, but we've done it. We've carried it over into these words, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Well, we, we know it's going to come with sweat and toil and anger, but... God, if you can see your way past to help us out. <laughs> hey, guys, I have good news for you this morning. It all changed with Jesus. He flipped it and put it back the way it was before Adam and Eve fell. Listen to this. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so now, because of what Jesus did, we can enjoy with Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice the past tense of that. 
I'm not struggling to someday get it. It's mine now. And so prayer becomes not a petition. It becomes a declaration. Lord, today, I thank you. You provide me richly whatever I need. Today, my daily bread is just hanging there like a fruit for the picking. Interesting analogy, Jeff. I hadn't processed that. <laughs> Thinking about Genesis and the fruit. and How many of you know it wasn't an apple tree? That's storybook, okay? That's flannel graphs in Sunday school, right? You understand that? <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the fruit that Adam ate was an apple. I didn't want to burst any bubbles, but... Okay, now listen to this scripture also by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present world, instruct them not to be conceited or arrogant, nor set their hope on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly and ceaselessly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God's not against you having stuff. He's not against you being rich. He just doesn't want that to take over your trust. He wants you in your wealth, in your material blessing that you enjoy. He wants you to stay in the place of trusting him. He continues to be your provider, regardless of how much you have in this material world. Notice. He gives it to us richly and ceaselessly for our enjoyment. The other night, it wasn't nighttime yet, it was afternoon, and I just felt like, you know, I need to just go do something for myself. You ever feel like that? I need to just go do something for me. So I took off left the house, went out, had lunch, then got my phone and looked on it and looked up some movies, decided on a movie I went to, wanted to go to. Then I went and saw the movie. You know what I did when I, when I got to the movie? I had popcorn. Just for me. I didn't even have to share it with Nina because she wasn't there. This was for me. You know what happens at times like those? I bring that illustration up only because, you know, sometimes we feel like we're being selfish or self-centered or whatever when we actually enjoy the things that we have. And here the Bible says God gives us richly everything and he wants us to enjoy it. That's not wrong. That's not a wrong feeling to have. He just desires that we keep him at the center and continue to declare daily that he is the source of everything that we do enjoy. Are, are, can, can you get on board with that? Does that make sense? That's the gospel. That's the New Testament version of praying for our daily bread. No more curse. No more sweat and toil. All right, now you might sweat. You might toil. You might get angry at work. You know, I get that. But it's not because you're under a curse and it's not because God is withholding from you. Now, the second 
teaching for this morning is on this idea of bread being spiritual bread. You know, there's a lot of applications for bread in the Bible. In Psalm 80, it's called the bread of tears. Psalm 102, it's called ashes like bread. Psalm 104, it's called the bread which strengthens a man's heart. In Psalm 105, it's called the bread of heaven. Psalm 127, the bread of sorrows. Proverbs chapter 4, the bread of wickedness. Proverbs chapter 6, that a whorish woman can bring a man to a piece of bread. You see that application? That's interesting. Proverbs chapter 20, the bread of deceit. Proverbs 31, the bread of idleness. Ecclesiastes, bread upon the waters, speaking of sowing your gifts, sowing your finances, bringing your offering into the house of the Lord and casting it upon the waters. Jesus said this in John chapter 4 and verse 34, My bread is to do the will of my Father. But perhaps the most difficult and strangest, kind of weird, almost like something picked out of a movie, a scary movie, we have something in John's gospel that just is, again, it's, it's kind of weird. Go there with me. I want to show it to you. If you have a Bible, believe me, you'll want to look at it. You'll want to see this for yourself in your Bible. John's gospel, chapter 6, talking about bread. Let's look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus here calls himself the bread of life. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. Now that should bring to your remembrance something from the Old Testament and this is why the religious leaders were so upset with Jesus calling himself the bread of life and the bread from heaven. How many of how many of you remember the story of how God led the nation of Israel, the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, led them out of there through miracles? And they went through the Red Sea that parted. And then they got to the other side and they began to encounter life's difficulties. One of which is, what are we going to eat? <laughs> I mean, we brought our coffee maker and our pots and our pans. And, you know, we have, we have little stoves with burners and stuff. You know, what do they call those things? The little burners you set under the, the little, you buy them and you peel the cap off and you light it. Bunsen burners. But what's that little deal that it's self-contained in a little tub and you light it on fire? Sterno, Sterno, who said that? Okay, see me after service, $5. <laughs> Any help I can get is good. I'll pay for help. I'll pay for help. I mean, during the week, you got a good scripture, send it to me, we'll see if we can work it in. <laughs> um, but they, they had what they needed as far as making or preparing, you know, but they were in the wilderness and they were getting hungry and they started to complain. Do you remember what God did? How he answered that? He rained something down from heaven called manna. And it was described as a little wafer-like that was sweet like honey. 
and they could only eat it that day. They couldn't leave it overnight because if they did, it would spoil. So every morning, fresh manna came down from heaven. In other words, I am a good, good father, and I've got your back. Trust me afresh each and every day with all that concerns you, and I will provide. Sounds like a similar story, similar point. Now, all Hebrew people, all Jewish people knew that very holy, sacred story very well. So when Jesus somewhat sort of set it aside and said, look, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They had a real problem with that because what he was doing was equating himself, number one, with God, but then telling them, it isn't your religion, it isn't your teaching that gives you life. I am your bread. I am the one that sustains you. Put all your hope in me. You see, legalistic, legalistic teaching of law-based religious code will always set itself against the bread of grace. Jesus was a rabbi, which simply means good teacher, but he was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He didn't believe in making your day about religious laws, do's and don'ts. In fact, he said, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because they accused him of eating on the Sabbath. One day his, he and his disciples were walking and they were hungry. And so they started walking through a field of corn. And they uh, stopped and peeled the corn, grabbed some ears off the corn stalk and peeled it and, and ate it. And his Pharisees and Sadducees were watching this and accused him of violating God, violating God's law. Jesus said, you don't get it. I'm the bread. I'm the life, and Sabbath wasn't made so that God could burden you with laws of do's and don'ts. Relationship with God is not an obligation of do's and don'ts. It's a life lived in joy and provision because God's a good, 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 good father, and he loves you. Jesus wasn't at odd with the old, odds with the Old Testament. But with the way that law was applied to people through the teaching and the legalism of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Look at verse 44. Actually, let's, let's go to verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they were all taught by God, that they will all be taught by God. Let me, let me review. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Stop, pause, selah. Whoever believes has eternal life. This too upset them because they didn't believe you could have eternal life by simply believing Pharisees and Sadducees taught that there was a religious process of steps by which you could obtain God's approval and favor and righteousness. If you followed those steps, well, then he would approve you. Then you would be forgiven. Then you would become righteous if you followed the steps. 
Interesting, Jesus doesn't mention any steps here. He simply says, if you believe me, you will have eternal life. I, verse 48, am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for life, or the bread I, that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Notice, this bread Jesus gives for the life of the world, not just for Christians, not just for those who go to church. Jesus gives this bread for the life of the entire world. Now look at verse 52. And Jeff, I realize I didn't ask you to put this up, and so he might be scrambling back there if, if he even wants to go there. But I, I, I want to read this contextually so that you get the idea of what's going on. Verse 52, The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Remember I told you this passage is kind of scary. It's just weird. Verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me I mean, is this getting a little thick? You know, it's, it's almost kind of gross. It's like, Jesus, what in the world? Is he talking about cannibalism? Is he talking, you know, is this a scary movie? Is this, you know, script for something? Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, Dang, this is hard. Who can listen to this? I don't know if I can sit here and listen to this. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said, do you take offense at this? <laughs> Are you offended? In other words, do I offend you? Just speaking so plainly about the fact that I'm going to take all of your religion, all of your rules, all of your do's and don'ts, all of your systems of teaching, and I'm going to set it aside and believing in me and trusting in me completely is the one thing that's required to have a relationship now with the Heavenly Father. Does that, does that offend you? Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's just talking about how intentional and how intense our commitment needs to be to puts Jesus at the center of our lives with our entire being. Jesus, I'm not playing a game here, all right? This is not church. 
Can I get an A? This is not church. Jesus, you're putting your whole self into this to the point of death, blood, flesh being ripped open, blood pouring from your body so that your visage is unrecognizable as that of a human being, a man, and they're going to stick you on a cross. And then you're going to go into the ground and rise again. And Jesus, if you're doing that, then I'm not playing a game any longer. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. Which just has to do with the essence of what makes me me. You are what you eat. You are what you drink. You cannot go past 40 days without eating. You can't go past, what is it, seven days without drinking. This is the essence of life that we believe on him, that we put Jesus at the center of everything. And he says, if you'll do that, you'll find that this is your daily bread. So your daily bread is not begging God that somehow he'd supply a plate of food today for you. Your daily bread is to put Jesus at the very center of all of your decisions, everything in your life, your relationships, all that concerns you. Put Jesus at the center. Make him Lord. Wow, look at verse 66. Do you take offense at this, Jesus said? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus, the man who never sinned, the man who could do no wrong, the man who was God, his, perfect was teach- his teaching was perfect, and yet got offended at what he taught, and many of his disciples got up and left him and stopped following him because he taught this. It says in the synagogue, in church. Have you ever heard anything in church you didn't understand? Have you ever heard anything in church that made you mad? Yeah, I have too. You know what? Hang in there. So did Jesus. Jesus ran a bunch of them off with things he said. (laughs) All to get them to a place of stripping all their legalism, stripping all of their religion, stripping all of their preconceived ideas about what God is like, down to one thing. I love you. Believe me, trust me with your life.